Okay, we have the privilege not only of uh, beginning uh, Parsha Shmos, but beginning Sefer Shmos, the second book. I mentioned last week in the introduction of our class that really this represents a transition from studying about a family to studying about a people. The book of Bereshit was the birth of a family, a very special family, and the book of Shmos is now the transition from a family to a people. So as always, we'll give a brief overview of the Parsha and then get into the uh, specific psukim that we're going to analyze and dissect with the commentaries. So Sefer Shmos begins, of course, with the passage of the generations, telling us the names of those who had descended to Egypt and the numbers, and then tells us that there was a new Paro, this is what we're going to study, a new Paro who ascended and uh, decreed that all the firstborn males need to be uh, murdered, all the firstborn males need to be killed, because he was fearful that one of them would emerge a uh, redeemer who was going to redeem the people. And, of course, the two, not only two, we'll see, but two of the um, midwives... Uh, Yocheved and uh, Shifra and Pua or, or uh, Yocheved and Miriam refused to uh, agree to Paro's order and instead not only did not kill the uh, male firstborns instead they um, nursed them and supported them and so on Moshe is born and of course this represents a very auspicious time Moshe is identifies he grows up in the we, we know his mother puts him in the basket everyone's familiar with this parts of the Torah we all know but in Seder and elsewhere mother puts him in the basket discovered by Basia the daughter of Paro and um, in fact by the way Moshe was not the name given by his mother Yocheved that was not the name who gave the name Moshe? Paro's daughter Batya gave the name Moshe which is fascinating that the name that we know him by Moshe Rabbeinu the greatest leader ever our greatest one of the Rambam's 13 principles of faith is to believe that Moshe there's never anyone who preceded Moshe who had his greatness there's no one ever anyone who succeeded Moshe with his greatness there was never a prophet as great as Moshe and here we have our greatest prophet ever and we don't refer to him by a Jewish name the name of his mother we refer to him by an Egyptian name the name Moshe a name that was given to him by the daughter of Paro, the very man who was the tyrant, who was the absolute villain who sought to exterminate the Jewish people, which I think is a very fascinating thing. In fact, it's very fascinating. I don't want to get into it. It's not our subject for this morning. But we know that one of the reasons that the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt was because they preserved their... Their names. So here we have in our parsha the beginning of the redemption of the Jewish people. The Gemara, there's actually there's a Medrash Rabbah which says that there were four reasons that they were saved. They preserved their names, they preserved their clothing, they didn't speak Lashon Hara, they didn't gossip, nor did they engage in the promiscuity of Egypt. So the Medrash actually gives four reasons why they were saved. But the Gemara gives three reasons, and that's much more famous. The three reasons, of course, being that they maintained and preserved their identity. And how does one preserve their identity? Through using their names, the Jewish names, the Jewish clothing, whatever that means, and thirdly, the language, the Hebrew language. In fact, this can be, it's brought down, um, the Chassam Sofer mentions an allusion to this. It says that Yaakov came Shalem. Yaakov came to Egypt, he was Shalem. Shalem stands for Shmosam, their names, and Levush, their, their uh, clothing, and the Mem is, what was it? Their names, their clothing, and their... And their language. What was the mem? Shalem. I'm sorry, the Malbush, Lashon, thank you. Shmosam, the Lashon, and the Malbush, the Malbusham. These three things, Yaakov came Shalem because he came and placed an emphasis. Shh, 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 shh. Because he came and placed an emphasis 
on maintaining, preserving their identity, it was in the merit of the Jewish people never fully assimilating, understanding the need to be distinguished and different from their neighbors, it was in that merit that ultimately they were redeemed. So this question, the Jewish people preserving their names, I think it's fascinating. It's very fascinating that the very Parsha in which we're told they were redeemed because they preserved their uniquely Jewish names, were introduced to Moshe, whom we know not through his Jewish name, but we know through his Egyptian name. I think that's fascinating. I didn't see it discussed. I did see the Mincha... Hold, hold, wow, what did everyone have for breakfast this morning? It's the excitement over the lunch and learn with the incredible scholar that we have. But everyone, hold on to, hold on to uh, your horses a little bit. But the, uh, the Mincha's Usher of Usher Weiss a great gadol today in Israel, Menachem Sasher has an essay on this topic because he says, "Is it true that today do we have a prohibition to use a non-Jewish name? If it was the merit of their names for which they were redeemed, um, are we prohibited from using a non-Jewish name?" So he quotes first of all the Maharam Shik and the Rugged Shavargon are of the opinion that there is, based on our parsha, there is an Isser Doraisa, a biblical prohibition to have a non-Jewish name. You're not allowed to give, you're not allowed to use a non-Jewish name. That's the opinion of the Maram Shik. That's the opinion of the Rugged Shavagon. Then he quotes the Igris Moshe of Moshe Feinstein Zatzal, who says, what are you talking about? How could there be a biblical prohibition to use a non-Jewish name? Have you ever opened the Mishnah or the Gemara? Don't you know that we have great Tanayim and Amoram? Some of the greatest rabbis had non-Jewish names. For example, Tosos and Gittin quotes are Rabbeinu Peter. Peter. It was a great rabbi quoted by Tosvos who lived in the time of Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, was a colleague of his, known as Peter. We have great rabbis known as Alexander, named for Alexander the Great. Not exactly a Jewish name. We have in the, one of the most famous opinions in the Mishnah is Rabbi Yishmael. Yishmael is not exactly one of the great Jewish figures of all time. So Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva where he disagrees with the Maram Shik and he says, what do you mean? Look throughout Jewish history and we see great rabbis who are named after non-Jews, how could there be a prohibition that's something which is permissible? Rav Asher Weiss wants to suggest that no. When is there a prohibition? The prohibition is to switch all three. If you were to change your language, and change your name, and change your clothing, then what do you get? Most of American Jewry, which is, unfortunately, tragically, assimilated. They've changed their look. They're not, they're not discernible or identifiable as Jews in their appearance. They're not discernible or identifiable in their name. They're not discernible or identifiable in their language. And the result is, tragically, assimilation. So the prohibition is to do all three. But says Rav Asher Weiss, if you preserve one or you're only changing one, then there's no prohibition. So therefore he argues that certainly for the purpose of business, if a person needs a non-Jewish name for the, person, the purpose of... Uh, I have a brother-in-law, his name is Gershon. But in business, his email, he's... he's uh, He's in finance. He's Gary. Gary. But I just learned uh, this past weekend that uh, he doesn't have an English. His parents never gave him it. He made it up. In business, he needed an English name. Gershon wasn't going to fly, so he took the name Gary. So if a person needs a non-Jewish name for the purpose of business, says Rav Asher Weiss, that's permissible. But, but, he says, Rav Asher Weiss, in this essay, in Asher, we should be very careful nonetheless to recognize that our name has a great impact on us and that we should make sure to preserve our Hebrew, our Jewish name, if not necessarily for business because that has an impact on us. And he brings a evidence for this from our parsha as well where he talks about the fact that Paro bestowed these other names on Yochebed and Miriam namely Shifra and Pua but they were careful nevertheless to use their Hebrew name because they understood that ultimately so much of our character is influenced and defined by our name 
that has a big impact on us. We believe the Gemara says that parents experience a form of prophecy when they bestow a name upon their child. A name in Judaism is much more than just a label. A name is a description. It's a proscription, actually. We're prescribing what the child will be like when we give that name. That's why we're very careful in terms of the names that we give. He deals there of Asher Weiss. I don't want to spend time on this. All of this is one big tangent. But why? why um, how could the great Rabbi Yishmael we don't, we don't really find Jewish children today being named Yishmael. Yeah. But why could the great Rebbe Yishmael, the great Rebbe Yishmael have that name? How did his parents give him that name? After all, Yishmael was a Russia. So first of all, Yishmael, it said, did tshuva at the end of his life. But he says, moreover, where did the name Yishmael come from? Avram. It came from Avram. And how did Avram come to the, conclude that name? God. Kershboch himself, the Rebona Shalom gave the name. So when the Rebona Shalom gives a name you're still free to use it. It's when you have a generally secular name that is applied to an individual who is wicked in their character, that's a name that we avoid. So again, we could discuss for hours the whole role of names in Judaism is a very, very interesting uh, topic. Not, uh, not for now. I'm just pointing out to you, Rav Asher Weiss doesn't deal with this in his, in his uh, article, but it's fascinating to me that the very parsha that we learn that preserving your Jewish name is redemptive is the very parsha that we're introduced to our greatest leader of all time, who is one of our principles of our faith to believe he's our greatest leader of all time. And yet, how do we know him? Not by the name his mother gave him. How many people even know the name his mother gave him? We know him by the name, the Egyptian name that the daughter of Paro gave him. But what's the name? So what is the Egyptian name? Well, what? Right. Okay, but it was it was bestowed by the daughter of Paro. We, 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 we're not going to really... Hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not going to really get to it, but maybe that's how we have a cute... Did Bas Paro in Hebrew say, and that's how she came to Moshe? Or no, she named him Moshe. What's the Mephoshim say? She named him Moshe, and then we came up with a cute allusion, did Bas Paro speak Hebrew? Is that how she... No, she gave an Egyptian name, Moshe, and then we created this reference or allusion. Hold off on your questions again till the, till the, uh, till the end. So we have the birth of Moshe, and of course, um, they the continue to watch, and uh, need somebody to nurse, and his mother is brought, and so on. Moshe then grows up, he identifies with his people. Moshe is, fle- is forced to run away. Moshe has this moment of a great uh, personal crisis. He goes through this major identity crisis. Who is he? Is he the Egyptian who grew up in the palace? Is he the Jew who is the child, the progeny of a great legacy? He uh, sees this conflict. That's how some of the uh, commentators explain beautifully. That he looked to the right and he looked to the left. He saw there was no man. Meaning, if you're not going to be, who are you? If you're trying to hedge, then you're nothing. You have to define who you are. He's forced to flee. He marries Yisro's daughter. this great Midianite woman. And, uh, and then concludes that the time for salvation has arrived. And we have the episode of the burning bush. It is on fire, but it's not being consumed. Moshe has to take his shoes off. God recruits him to be a leader. Moshe hesitates seven days. Moshe says, no, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, I'm not interested. But ultimately God says, too bad, I'm God, I always win. So uh, Moshe says, fine, what's your name? God reveals this very uh, ambiguous or esoteric name. And then uh, Moshe doubts that the people are going to believe him. Moshe davens to Hashem, his objections. He embarks to Egypt. Moshe and Aaron come to Paro, let my people go. Paro says no. And the rest is, as they say, history. That's our Pasha. What I want to study together is Perak Aleph, Pasuk Ches. Perak Aleph, chapter 1, beginning on verse 8. 
I think we saw the beginning of this last year, but we didn't get far into it, so that's where I want to start. And this is a natural place to start, because if you look in the Chumash, you see there's a pay. As I've mentioned many times, the Torah was not organized. The chapters were not given by Jewish sources. The chapters are Christian in origin. In the Middle Ages, during the dispositions, the, the, um, when, when the, the most famous one, of course, being the one between the Ramban and Nicholas Donan, but there are others where the Christians would recruit a Jew to have a public debate and try to bring evidence to Jesus being from the Torah and force the Jew. And as we discussed at length, that was a lose-lose for the Jew. If they won the debate, they lost. If they lost the debate, they lost. There was no win option for the Jew when they would have one of those, when the disputations, I'm sorry, was the word I was looking for. When they would have a disputation and they would come together, there was no win option. So that's where the chapters came from. Our understanding of how to break up the Torah is based on the text, the layout. We have a tradition in our text, what's called psuchos and stumos, where a pay shows you a psucha means that a sentence ends in the middle of the line, and then it begins in the next line, the next paragraph. That tells us there's a natural break in the section. And then you have what's called stumos, which is you have a break in the line, and the next paragraph begins at the end of the line with a break. So one is a more significant break than another, but that's how we know in the narrative that there's a, a section break. These chapters were given later. In fact, some were strict. Rabbi Salavechik, Zichron al-Avracha, didn't want to call it a perek. He called it a capital. He called it a chapter. He didn't want to give it a status as if it was from our Jewish tradition. It's something which only came much later and is not Jewish in origin. So this is a natural break where the Torah sought to have a break. You see, if you're looking in the stone Chumash on page 292-293, Art Scroll did a great service. When they did the layout of the Hebrew, they did the layout following the way it falls in the Torah itself, in the Torah scroll itself. So you see that it says, Vatim Aleha Osam, the land became filled with them, and then there's a little break. And then the next sentence, Vayaka Melachadash, even though it looks like it's part of the same chapter, from a Christian standpoint, it's part of the same chapter. From a Jewish traditional standpoint, it's a new chapter because there's a break in the line. Okay? So that's where we're starting. Says the Pasuk, Vayaka Melachadash Amitzrayim, Asherleyadas Yosef. A new king arose who did not know Yosef. In other words, this is a break between the beginning of Sefer Shemos recounts that the names of the Jewish people who had come to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and his family, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yud, so on, all of the tribes, that they came down as 70. Yosef died, that whole generation died. The Jewish people promulgated, propagated. There was a population explosion of the Jewish people. End of section. Now the new section. You think all is well? You think everything is continuing to go nicely for the Jewish people? No. There was a new president. There was a new king. There was a new leader. He didn't know Yosef. Now what does it mean he didn't know Yosef? What does it mean? So of course Rashi quotes the famous uh, sentence, There's a debate between our great rabbis, Rav and Shmuel, in the Talmud. When it says a new king arose, it means literally a new king. There was an election, or there was the death of the previous king. A new king ascended the throne, it was a new king, and the new king didn't have a rapport, didn't have a relationship with Yosef or his descendants, and therefore Yosef and his significance were irrelevant to him. V'chadam and the other said, no, nishadshu gzero sav. No, it was the same king, it was the same monarchy, it was the same administration, but this administration had a major change of heart. The administration had a major change of heart. Now, why wouldn't you say Chadash means Chadash Mamash? Right? What's the more obvious of the opinions is to say when the verse says that a new king arose 
you would have asked me, I would have said there's only one possibility. A new king means a new king. The previous king died. Oh, great. So look in the Sifsei Chachamim, a super commentary on Rashi, in Oz Tess. So why does one of the rabbis say, no, Chadash means it was the same king, it was the same administration, but they had a change of mind? Because it should have said, It should have said, That the former king died and a new king arose. The fact that it doesn't reference death, it just says, That a new king arose implies it was the same king, but a new attitude, a new approach, a new set of policies arose, and that's why there's a second opinion that it was the same king, but a new set of policies. Look at the Ibn Ezra. Rav Avram Ibn Ezra writes, Melachadash, Perusho The Ibn Ezra is a literalist. The Ibn Ezra always approaches a text literally. He's not interested in Medrash. He's not interested in, in uh, homiletics. Ibn Ezra's only his style is to always be interested in the, in the exact uh, literal translation. So pshuto kemashmo, beloto sephos, without any additions. There's no homiletical interpretation necessary. What does it mean, Melachadash? It means that a new person arose who was not from a dynasty. He did not descend from a previous king. Normally, how does monarchy work? One king descends from another. It's not like a beautiful election democracy where there's campaigning and anyone is allowed to submit their name and if they can raise the money and campaign, they too can arise to greatness as long as they can produce their American birth certificate. It's not like a beautiful, it's not like a beautiful uh, democracy. My daughter, my oldest daughter, was born in Israel. She's very bitter. She's written an essay for school about it, that she can't be president of the United States of America. She was born in uh, Israel. Of course, her passport doesn't say Israel, just says Jerusalem. It's another story altogether, but she can't be the king. So, we live in a democracy. Anybody can be. But in a monarchy, if you're in England, if you're in England, there's no election for who's going to be the next king or the next queen or a prince or a princess. It's, uh, it stays within the family. Says the Ibn Ezra, Melech Hadash is a reference to the fact that a new individual arose as king who was not part of the royal family. Chadash means Shaloha haya mizera hamalucha was not part of a royal family. Al king ksiv vayakam and that's why it says Vayakam. Why should, it shouldn't say Vayakam. Vayakam means he arose. It should have said Vayimloch. A new king served as king. Vayimloch. It was a new king serving as king. Why does Vayakam? He arose. So Ibn Ezra was explaining because he came from outside the royal line. He wasn't royalty. This was a new individual, Melachadash. He was a stranger. What's the significance of that? The answer, I think, is if it was the son of the previous Paro, how could he not know Yosef? Not only would he know Yosef, he grew up with Yosef. He was in the palace. He was a little prince playing when Yosef was the economic advisor, when Yosef was the chief economist of Egypt. Of course he knew Yosef. And Yosef's sons, Menashe and Ephraim, would have been his contemporaries. And Yosef's grandsons would have been his little children. They would play in the garden of the palace. So if 
if, even if it was the grandson, the great-grandson of the Paro, but if he grew up in the palace, if he was part of royalty, of course he would know Yosef. They would be contemporaries. So Ibn Ezra says, Melech Hadash means a new king who was not part of the royal line. He just came from, he was an outsider, not of Washington, but of Cairo, of the Egyptian palace. He was an outsider, and therefore he was unfamiliar with Yosef and his family, and what they meant to the Egyptian economy, what they meant to the Egyptian people. And Ibn Ezra proves his opinion from the use of the word Vayakam instead of Vayimlo. The Sforno also has a comment, Rav Avadya Sforno, and says the Sforno, Vayakam el HaChadash HaMetzor HaMashalaya does Yosef. What does it mean as a new king that didn't know Yosef? Afa pishaya zichron mimenu bedivrei ayamim. La malachem beli safeik. What are you telling me? There was no portrait of Yosef hanging in the palace? Understand who Yosef was. Understand what he meant. If we had a great economist who saved America from this depression, the recession, who anticipated it coming, who prophesied that it was going to come and said, here's what you need to do in order to avoid it, and not only avoid it, that America's economy will thrive and the Europeans will come to us, China will be borrowing from America. Would that individual's portrait not hang in the White House permanently? Would that individual's name not somehow be enshrined, enshrined in Congress, the halls of Congress? Of course they would. So says the Sforno, it's impossible. Yosef, who saved the Egyptian economy to the extent that not only did he preserve their economy, it was thriving during the years of famine, such that every other nation needed to turn to them to borrow. Are you telling me they forgot? No, it was Bedivrei Ayamim. It was in the Divrei Ayamim Lemalachos, of course it was in the annals of history. What does it mean? It he chose not to know Yosef. Think about it. In the biblical Hebrew, what does Yada mean? What is Da'as? Knowledge. But it's not knowledge. It's not knowledge alone. It's intimacy. It's a knowledge which leads to closeness and intimacy. Right? I'm studying the Tanya now. Since, since, uh, no, no, since the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidim, Yutas Kislev, I've been studying Tanya. So what's Tanya? What's Chabad based on? Chachma, Bina, and Das. And these three approaches, Chachma, Bina, and Das, are supposed to animate every aspect of all ten of the spheros or Chachma should be animated by Chachma, Bina, and Das. What's Chachma, Bina, and Das? What's the difference between them? Chachma is Koachma, to know. It's knowledge. It's pure knowledge. Chachma means, do I have, do I have knowledge of the content? Can I spit back the table of... Uh, elements in chemistry. Can I tell you the formulas in mathematics? It's koachmat, it's to know what's in it. It's the content. That's chokhmah. Bina is the ability to distinguish bain between this and this. It's discernment. How do I distinguish between one thing and another? It's more than just the chokhmah is, is, is memorizing. You can memorize knowledge and have chokhmah. Bina is the ability to have insight. Lahavin bain davar davar to know between one thing and another. What's das of Chabad? What's Da'as? Da'as was what it means in Biblical Hebrew. Adam yada's chava ishto. Adam knew his wife. What does it mean he knew her? He knew she liked to shop? He knew which flower she liked? What does it mean he knew her? It means he had intimacy with her. It's a knowledge which is an absolute exposure. It's a knowledge which is, leads to a bond, to intimacy, to a closeness, to a connection. That's now, that's Da'as. So that's what the, the Balatanya 
The Alter Rebbe Zatzal explains that's this. This is the hierarchy: Chachma, and then above that is Bina, and the highest is Das. Is to take information which doesn't remain information, but it's an information which yields a closeness. It's information which yields intimacy. It's the difference. Again, there's so many tangents. It's the difference between the Greeks and the Jewish perspective on wisdom. Greek understanding of wisdom is that it remains in the abstract, in the conceptual, in the theoretical. It's it's chachma. It's it's chachma. It's koachma. You know the content. You could spit it back, but it doesn't mold and shape your character. It doesn't lead to a closeness and connection with the Almighty. It's knowledge divorced from character. That's chachma, and that's what the Greeks excelled at. That's yavan. Judaism understands that no, the highest level of knowledge. And by the way, I find it fascinating in studying Tanya that people have an absolutely distorted notion that Hasidus is for people who can't think. It's unintellectual. Hasidus is, you know, you make lachaims and you hop and dance and skip and bounce off the walls and sing and fabreng and do all kinds of things because, you know, if you can't steig, then you need to connect to God another way. So what do you do? You, you make a lachaim. The whole Tanya is all about knowledge. It's all about how to use your intellect. The whole Tanya is about learning Torah using intellect, but not only using it as, a, as an abstract conceptual knowledge, but the type of knowledge which molds and shapes and transforms and yields a sense of intimacy and a sense of closeness. So that's how the Sforno is explaining. Oh, so that's, that's why the Gemara says, Chachma Bagayim Ta'amin, Torah Al Ta'amin. There is knowledge among the nations of the world, but not Torah. What does that mean? There is tremendous knowledge to be found among the nations of the world. Where do you think our rabbis got their knowledge from? Where do you think the great rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud knew whatever they knew about science of their day? They sat in laboratories. They were embracing the knowledge of their time. Chachma Bagayim Tamin. Chachma means knowledge in the sense of pure content. Information. There's tremendous information. But Torah... The type of information which yields character growth, which leads to a f- intimacy with the Almighty, al ta'amin. That's not there. You know, they say about Aristotle, that Aristotle, uh, who had degrees, great treaties on ethics and morality, but himself lived an immoral life. And when once challenged on that fact, he said, I'm only Aristotle from the neck up. And that was the Greek approach, is that my brain is what houses information. But from the neck down, I have other interests and priorities and temptations. Judaism says no. The head is the computer center for the rest of the brain. The whole idea of the rush, the rosh, whatever. There's a lot of Tanya about this also. But, but that's, it's a different level. It's da'as. It's da'as is intimate connection. Why am I sharing this whole uh, digression with you? Because that's what the Sfarno is saying. Of course he knew Yosef. What, he didn't go to third grade in Egypt? He never read the textbook that there was a great economist named Joseph who saved the entire Egyptian economy? He knew Yosef at the level of Chachma. He knew him as information, but not Das. He didn't choose to know him in an intimate way, in the sense of feeling a closeness, a loyalty, an allegiance, a fidelity. And therefore, that's the Sforno's words. He didn't see an Efsharusa Yosam Am Shahaya Amza Roy Lases Panim La Amo Ba'avuro. He didn't see the Jewish people as earning any merit. The Jewish people were not worthy of any distinct status just because their grandfather happened to be Yosef. Did he know Yosef? 
Sure, he knew Yosef. How could you not know Yosef? But did he know Yosef enough to feel that Yosef's grandchildren were deserving of a greater status? He chose not to. Yeah. Oh, so we'll see that right now in the Kliyakar. Just so I, I keep, I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Because he, he says that as long as the brothers... I mean, yeah. Right, that's another interpretation. As long as someone was alive, he knew him once they died. Look at the Kliyakar. Very good, the Kliyakar says that. Rav Lunchitz from Lemberg. Since when do you find the description of a king being that they get up? Vayakam, taking power. King doesn't take power. What do you mean they got up? They, it should be vayimloch. What's the English translation of vayimloch? To rule, to reign. The reign of a new king began. What do you mean vayakam? We find the language of Vayakam when one person plots or schemes against another with the goal of hurting or damaging them. If you look in the Torah, you see the word Vayakam used when one person schemes against another with the intent of hurting them. For example, Vayakam Kayan al Hevel Achiv, Vayahar Gehu. Kayan arose against Hevel his brother and he killed him. Or, for example, Kikashir Yakum Isharayu Urtsacho Nefesh. Pasakindvaram, when it describes murder, when a person will rise against their friend, their neighbor, and murder them. Kach Malach Melach Aritze Ayudeh Aitach Bulos Asherchishev Lasos Lisrael Neged Ratzan Akelis Parach Afa Pishiraki Ashami Mahem Bameshahayaparam Verabim Shalokedaracha Olam. This individual should have been observing and said to themselves, saying to themselves, something unusual. This is a special people. The population growth they are experiencing is not only unusual, it's unprecedented. There's something miraculous happening. Right? They're happening having six tuplets, seven tuplets, there's Jewish kids popping out all over the place. This is insane. They should have realized that there's something special. But nevertheless, they wanted to outsmart God, the king, this administration. Outsmart God and attack the Jewish people. Says the Kliyakar, you know what Vayakam is? They stood to bring upon themselves the Eser Makos. This aggressive approach of Vayakam, the aggressive um, scheme, strategy, to attack the Jewish people, despite God making it clear that they're a special people, this king brought upon himself and his nation the makos that ultimately they would endure and that they would suffer. Keep going, the Kleyakar says. Asher does Yosef, he didn't know Yosef. Ki lo yada ma shakara Yosef. Ki achiv hayu mishtadlim b'chol oz lahavidu elevata achala mosa v'lo ilo ahem ko nechleim ha shenechlu. Ki ratzan hake yizborach hayem Yosef l'gad lo v'dever elokeinu yekum malo lam. So the Kliyakar has a different interpretation. What does it mean, He didn't know Joseph. It means he didn't know what happened with Yosef. The episode of Joseph. What was the episode of Joseph? The episode of Joseph was that the brothers, you know, you think Paro is the first one to try to eliminate Yosef and his descendants? The brothers tried to get rid of Yosef. 
But you know what? That went against God's plans. So when it's man against God's plans, who's going to win? My money's on God every time. So the narrator, the Torah is telling us, Asher Yosef, according to Kliyakar means, Asher Yosef means, never knew, Yosef never knew what happened with Yosef. That there's already precedent for man trying to eliminate Yosef and his offspring against God's will. And who won? God's will. So don't go there. Didn't know that, and therefore here again is trying to force the issue to challenge God and the destiny of Yosef. So here on this one Pasuk, we had many different interpretations. Vayaka Melech Hadash, a new king, rose. What did it mean, a new king? Rav and Shmuel. One said literally it was a new king, and the other said no, not literally, figuratively it was an administra- the same administration, but whom had a new attitude and a new approach. The Ibn Ezra added Melech Hadash, what do you mean a new king meant? They were not from royal lineage. They did not descend from the monarchy. They were an outsider. And therefore they were not familiar with Yosef in the whole story. We had the Svarno say, what does it mean, Asher Yadas Yosef meant? Chose, of course they knew Yosef and the story of Yosef, but they chose not to feel close to Yosef or his offspring as a result. And finally we had the Kliyakar, who played with the word Vayakam, that this was a, it should have said Vayimloch, what does this tell us? That this king arose with a scheme, with a strategy to attack the Jewish people. Okay, that's all the first Pasuk. Pasuk Tes. Vayomer Elamo. So this king said to his nation, Hinei am b'nei Yisrael rav ve'atzum mimenu. He said, this people, the children of Israel, you know what? They're more numerous. If you look at their numbers, their population, they've got more people than we do. And ve'atzum, because they have more numbers, they're stronger than we are. So Havan is Chak Malo, Penyer Be, Vayaki Sikrana Melchama, Venosov, Gamu al Son Enu, Venocham Banu Valam in Aretz. So we're going to need to scheme. Let's outsmart them. Because if they continue to be more numerous than we are, what's going to happen? If a war breaks out and they side with our enemy, then we're done. And they're going to be able to escape from our servitude, from being our servants, and they're going to leave the land. So we need to outsmart them. In other words, we can't simply fight them right now because they're more they're stronger and they're more in number but yet we have the rule we're sovereign we're in control so what should we do so they came to the following conclusion so what should we do they appointed taskmasters in order to um, give them greater burdens to build storehouses for Paro in other words break their back break their spirit if you can't physically defeat them then you can break their spirit and they will remain subservient to you. And that was their strategy. Did the strategy work? No. Because it didn't break their spirit. God had other plans. Instead of... What was their goal? If you read the subtext, what's really happening? What are the Egyptians saying? So we got a problem. It's, it's Lahavdil, like in Israel where you have the demographic dilemma, the great demographic problem. So the Egyptians had a demographic problem. What was the demographic problem? The Jewish people were growing at such a rate they were going to outnumber the Egyptians. And they would lose their Egyptian identity. wouldn't be an Egyptian country. So they decided, what are we going to do? We can't just kill them all. Why can't we do that? We'll see in a moment. We can't just kill them all, so what are we going to do? So why don't we make their life so miserable that they won't want to have children? Because who wants to bring children into a miserable world? So what is the Pasuk telling us? Did that work? The Chasher Ya'anu Oso, the more miserable they made their life, the more children they had. God had other plans. 
They had more and more children. They had greater and greater. What an incredible display of faith. What an unbelievable display of faith. That the Jewish people continued to grow. And this was the whole episode we know was the merit of the women who um, beautified themselves in order to seduce their husbands. Because you know what? The men, the men who have such shallow thinking, who don't have foresight, um, said, you know what? Life is so miserable. How could we bring children into this world? We can't. And they separated from their wives. They said, we absolutely can't be with you because we don't want to bring children. I'm going to have a child to make him have to be a slave? Absolutely not. And what do women do? Women are endowed with a greater foresight, roas, anolad, to see the future. They said, no, they believed in redemption, that the life is going to get greater. Yet, having children is one of the greatest displays of faith in the future that one can exhibit. Because you only bring children into the world if you believe they will have a bright future. So the women beautified themselves with the mirrors, which attracted their husbands, who whole philosophy, once I get, tells you how shallow men are. No, we can't bring children into the world. It's too ma- Oh, honey, you look good. <laughs> right? So, testament to, even back then, men were very shallow. There went their whole philosophy of, we can't bring children into the world. All their wives needed was a little extra lipstick, a little perfume, right? The mirror. Next thing you know, there were new children walking around. So, and those mirrors were ultimately turned into the, the kior. They were turned into one of the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash because that was the most holy, sacred material you had. The very mirrors that were used to display the faith in the future was used in the, in the, uh, in the Mishkan, in the Mishkan itself. My mother always likes to point out, are you, about, are you going to talk about it at your lunch and learn? Because I won't mention it. That in Jewish history, one of the greatest um, population growths that we experienced, were you going to talk about it? Yes? Was in the DP camps following the Holocaust. You would think that the survivors in the DP camps following the Holocaust would say, I'm not bringing children into this world so that they could be targeted for being Jews after what we've endured. Thank you, but no thank you. Let's live out the rest of our lives. And that's it. Who needs to bring more Jews who will be targeted with anti-Semitism and persecution? But instead, instead there was a tremendous population explosion. Perhaps more than any other time in our history other than here in Egypt. That's also an incredible display of, of faith and of spiritual resistance, which is my mother's topic for the Lunch and Learn, because it's a spiritual resistance to say, despite the odds and the physical circumstances, I have faith that things will turn better once again in the future. So that's what's going on here. That's the scheme. So now go back to Pusik Test. Let's look at it inside a little bit. What's happening here? Paro turns to his people, Vayomer El Amo, he says to his nation, Hine, translate the word Hine, Behold, Am B'nai Yisrael. That's funny. Why not just call them Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, Am Yisrael. Why Am B'nai Yisrael? So Paro turns to El Amo, his Am, and he tells them, Am B'nai Yisrael, Rav Atsumimenu. They're great in number, and they're stronger than we are. Or Mimenu. Right. So what's going on? So look at the Kliyakar. Says the Kliyakar Pasuk Tes. Hosef milas am, Why did he have to use the word am? He should have turned to his nation and said, Behold, B'nai Yisrael arav v'atzum mimenu. What is the word am? Gam ma'sha'amar v'yomer el amo v'chi am 
כל העם דיבר, וכי אם כל העם דיבר, הבל למימר ויאמר אל שרה וחכמיו. Why does it describe ויאמר אל עמו? They didn't have presidential address, the State of the Union. There was no TV. There was no mass media. How did Paro address his entire nation? Of course he, he asked this question to his whole nation. That's absurd, because then the Jewish people would have heard the entire thing. So of course he didn't broadcast the message to his whole nation. He called in his advisors. He called in his cabinet and he said, we got a Jewish problem. What are we going to do with the Jewish problem? We need to create a final solution. That's what Paro said to his advisors. So why does the Pasuk describe it? Vayomer el amo, he said it to his whole nation, when surely he only said it to his advisors. And why did he address it as Am B'nai Yisrael, when he could have just said B'nai Yisrael, these are the Kliyakar's questions. So that's the Kliyakar. Elakach amar lahem Paro, shelo yitachein shiyu shnei amim misnagdim darim b'medina achas. You know what? Egypt, this place is not big enough for the two of us. What he was describing to his advisors, the fundamental problem as he saw it was that this country is not big enough for two separate nations. Meant, Vayomer Alamo didn't mean he spoke to his nation, it meant he spoke on behalf of his nation. That we are the nation of Egypt. We are the national identity. This is our country. And therefore, Bizman Mu'at Nasu Amrav. Afabishadain Enam Rabimimimenu, Mikomakum Huat Sumimenu, Giborim Beteva, Kikotumim Darkam Lios Halashim Beteva, Vikan Noldu Shisha Bekeras Achaz, Achad, Vyavabichain, Hematsumim Beteva Yosumimenu. Paro says to his advisors, on behalf of his nation, we got a problem. Because we're losing our identity. We are the Egyptian country. But we got a people who are subsumed within our people who are having a population explosion. Now normally when you have twins, I guess at least this was true in the time of Egypt or in the time of Ephraim Zalman Lunches, of Lemberg, the Kliakar, who lived, I think, in the 1700s in Poland, that normally, I guess, when you had twins, they were inherently weaker. Maybe made sense that when you had multiples, they had greater health issues. So normally, Paro says to his people, when people are giving birth to multiples, they're weaker, they're not as strong. But here you have a people who every Jewish woman is having six tuplets. Right? There's reality shows all over Egypt of these families of six children each. And not only are they not weaker, they're stronger. So right now, we outnumber them in population, but they're giving birth to six kids at a time who are each stronger than our people. So we got a problem. Because we've got a demographic problem. They're going to outnumber us. So what's the issue? Am against Am. Nation against nation. It's a demographic problem. Who is our identity? So that's how the Kliyakar explains the Pasuk. Vayomer el Amo. He was speaking on behalf of Amo, his nation. Hinei Am b'nei Yisrael. We got a second Am. What did he mean by that? He goes on to explain. Well, look at the Yorachayim. The Yorachayim, I think, says it very beautifully. And that's the Yorachayim was bothered by a different question. Says the Yorachayim, Rav Chaim ben Atar, originally from Morocco, then from Yerushalayim. Says the Yorachayim, What's the word Hena? Hinei. He said to his people, Hinei, behold, Am b'nei Yisrael, Rav He should have just said, 
B'nei Yisrael Rav Vatsum. What do you mean, Hine? Why does he introduce the challenge with the word Hine? So look at the second paragraph in the Orachayim. Od Yirtza Ba'omro Hine Am Azeh Aderach Ki Am Zeh Mishuna Mikol Ha'amim Ki Shar Ha'amim Yisarvu B'neim Ve'en Lecha Am She'en Bo Tarov Ez Godol Mikam Ha'amim Asher Lokein Am Yisrael Normally a nation is a melting pot. Anywhere in the world you look at that country and they're a melting pot of immigrants from other countries. They don't have one collective strong identity. They're a melting pot. They're a composite of people who are immigrants from other countries and other cultures and other nations. America perhaps is the greatest example of this melting pot. But really all countries to a certain extent are comprised of immigrants from other countries who maybe take on the culture of that country but bring with them as well their, their uh, influence. Says Paro, but not the Jewish people. They are Hinei Am B'nei Yisrael. Look at this look at this Am. This is an Am that's comprised exclusively of B'nei Yisrael. It's an entire nation who descends from one family. Listen to this interpretation. This to me explains the beauty of the state of Israel today and the strength of the state of Israel today. How could it be that this tiny nation of 7 million people has second, third, strongest army in the world? How could it be they're a tiny sliver of a country smaller than New Jersey? You know, how many, you know how many states of Israel could fit in the state of Florida? Seven. state of Florida could hold Israel seven times. Just to give you a context, a sense. And nevertheless, this great state of Israel has, I think, one-third, two-thirds of the, of the uh, startup companies on the NASDAQ and innovation and Nobel Prizes. We're all familiar with all of this. So how is it that they have this strong, incredible military? Says the Orachayim. Listen to this beautiful insight. Name any other country in the world. France, Germany, America, China. And you know what? Their country is made up of citizens who come from different places in the world, who come from different families, who come from different backgrounds. Maybe they've blended together to create one national identity, but they originate from different families and from different countries and they've immigrated and they've moved. Look at the state of Israel. Every Jewish citizen of the state of Israel shares the same great-grandparents. You realize how powerful that is? So, in America, do we feel close to all Americans? Absolutely. We're proud to be Americans. But are they our brothers and sisters? Are they even our cousins? Third cousins? They're even further removed from that. They're our neighbors. And they're part of the same nationality. And we feel close to them because we're proud to be Americans. We're citizens of the same country and our bond is created through our citizenship. But in Israel, the bond between one Jew and another is not the shared citizenship. It's that we're cousins. Isn't that incredible? A country who all of its citizens are actually cousins with one another actually come from the same, actually come from the same family. So when Paro turns to his advisors, he says to them, this is our problem. This is how the Orachayim teaches. This is how he explains the Pasuk. Vayomer Lamo, he says to his people, 
We got a problem. Because this people here in Egypt, they are a people who are entirely and exclusively comprised of the sons of Israel, of Yaakov. And therefore, they're stronger than we are. Why are they stronger? Because when our army goes out to war and they're fighting, they're fighting for their fellow citizens. But when their people go out to war, they're fighting for their brothers and sisters. They're fighting for their cousins. That's who they're fighting for. That's an even greater stake. That's even more that's on the line. If you heard Miriam Peretz speak at Chalashudas this past Shabbos, I don't know how many people were at Chalashudas. It was literally the most inspiring speech I've ever heard in my entire life. A woman who lost two sons in the Israeli army, one fighting in Lebanon, another fighting in Gaza. And she describes her unbelievable faith in the Almighty and what it means and what they fought for. And she described that her son who died in Lebanon, in uh, Gaza rather, when he was 17 he went to Poland. And when he came home from Poland he had 400 pictures on his memory card. And he starts showing his mother the 400 pictures and 399 of the 400 pictures were of flowers. So she turns to her son and she says, you went to Poland? You saw the camps? You saw what Jewish life was like before the war? And 399 out of 400 pictures are of flowers? So the 17-year-old kid looked at his mother and he said, he said, you see these flowers? This one's Chaim, and this one's Moshe, and this one's Sarah, and this one's Rachel. Because you see these flowers, they grew from soil that was saturated with the blood of Chaim and Moshe and Sarah and Rachel. Each of these flowers is a Jewish child that came out of the ground. And that's why I took those pictures. And she described when this son went to war. So when he came home, I'm sorry, at 17 years old, he said to his mother, when he went into the army, he said to her, you know why I'm fighting? Because never again under my watch will Jewish children's blood be put in the ground as they were the way I saw it in Poland. So when he went off to Gaza to fight her son, he had in his pocket not a Tehillim and not a sitter. In his pocket, in his uniform, while in the battle that ultimately cost him his life, were little pictures that his own children had made. Because he wanted to remember that he was fighting and risking his life for those Jewish children. That's why he did it. And, and she, you know, again, this woman is, was, spoke unbelievably. Unbelievably. So that's the Orachayim. When Jewish soldiers go out to fight in Israel, they're not fighting for fellow citizens that they never met. They're not fighting from strangers who happen to be residents of the same country. They're fighting for children who are their nephews and their nieces, their cousins, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers. And the Orachayim says, that's what Paro saw. Am B'nai Yisrael. The state of Israel, the Israeli people, these people in Egypt, they're B'nai Yisrael, they are exclusively comprised of one family. And because they're comprised of one family, they will have a bond and a loyalty and a fierceness to them that is nothing that we can compete with and that's why we're in trouble. That's what Paro saw as the problem. So what do we do? We need another strategy. Rashi says, Hava, every time it says Hava, is Lashon HaChana. We need to prepare, we need to strategize. We can't outpower them. We can't outnumber them. We need to outsmart them. Now what a fatal error to try to outsmart the Jews, but we need to outsmart them if we can't overpower them and we can't outnumber them. So what are we going to do? 
What are we going to do? We're going to increase the oppression, increase the persecution. They're going to join our enemies if there's a war. I'm just looking. There's so many comments to share here, but we're already out of time. So what are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to turn up the dial of the persecution, the oppression, the, the, the pain, and they're going to give up. They're going to stop having kids. But what happens? The opposite. Says Rashi, Look at Rashi Pasuk Yibbez. Kol mashahem nosdem lev la'anos, kein lev akarish baruchu laharbos ulahafritz. I met this morning with a professor from Technion. I had breakfast with her. Fascinating, fascinating woman. Technion's an incredible place. So she has written articles, done tremendous research. Why is it, and if you've read, it's similar to uh, the book Startup Nation. Why is it that there is greater innovation in Israel than any other place on earth? Right? The disproportionate representation in the world of innovation, startup companies, technology, Nobel Prize laureates, and so on. Why is it? Startup Nation's theory is the Israeli army. That's what does it. She has, she'd shared two theories which me I thought were fascinating, somewhat counterintuitive. She used fancy terms to them. You'll excuse me, I don't remember what they were. But the first was your level of comfort with ambiguity. That you're okay not needing everything to be exactly. She says, like an Israeli goes to a restaurant in Israel, they're not sure they're going to get what they really ordered, you're not sure when it's going to come. There's a certain level of comfort with ambiguity, and that promotes creativity. The second thing she said, which I thought was fascinating, that promotes creativity is, this is very interesting, in Israel, there's not a great respect for hierarchy, authority. In other words, the subordinate, the subordinate is perfectly comfortable criticizing and challenging the authority so that the, the worker is no problem telling the boss I think you're going about it all wrong you're doing it all wrong and that yields greater, greater creativity and by the way this is in contrast if you've read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell he talks about Korea which is a culture which entirely promotes subordination Korean airlines had the greatest incident of, of uh, disasters of plane crashes and they did the research to find out it's such an extent in Korean culture that um, a, a co-pilot will see the pilot making a fatal error and not say anything. Because you absolutely cannot challenge authority. So in that book, Malcolm Gladwell describes when they identified that was the problem, they retrained all of the pilots and they tried to change the culture to promote a level of comfort to be able to challenge and now their, their numbers went down. They're like the least amount of, of uh, plane crashes ever. Fascinating, fascinating. So anyway, so I said to her, kind of presumptuously, considering she's dedicated her life to researching this and I had thought about it all about four seconds while, while having my coffee, but I said to her, maybe the great reason for innovation is we have no choice. It's survival of the fittest. We've, we've been persecuted and oppressed, systematic attempts to eliminate us. Either we're going to innovate and we're going to earn our place in the world and take care of ourselves, or else we're in trouble. When no one else is going to sell us the airplanes, we better know how to make the best airplanes. And if no one else is going to share their satellite, we better make sure we have the best satellites. So that's like what Rashi is saying. Our enemies thought that they were going to persecute us in a way that would break our backs, break our spirits. We would give up hope and assimilate and be done. There would be no more Jewish people. That's what Paro's strategy was. But Kasher Ya'anuoso, the more that they challenged us, the more they made us suffer, not only did we not break our back and our spirit to give up, 
it increased and promoted our resolve, our tenacity, and our will, not only to survive, but to thrive. So what Paro sought to do then is what our enemies seek to do now, and uh, please God, we experienced the same redemption. There's a lot more we had to cover here, but uh, we're going to stop here. 13 minutes, you have the greatest lunch and learn ever. Okay.